Thank you, Jordan, for leading us in, in worship thus far, and a special welcome as well to uh, Kobus and Giovanna. Uh, uh, thank you for uh, coming down, especially for my sermon, I'm assuming. Um, uh, now, it's great to see you guys again. It's the first time I've seen you since, you since you've been married, so congratulations. Um, yeah, it's great to have you fellowshipping with us again today. If you have your, your Bibles with you this morning, can you please open up with me to Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 3 this morning. And we have reached the end. This is our final message this morning from this power-packed epistle of Paul to his young son in the faith, that is Titus, ministering on the island of Crete. This morning we are going to look at the final few verses, verses 9 through 15. Paul, having already given the, the full argument of the book itself, he has some closing remarks, some final words to share with Titus, and to share with us also this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along with me as we read Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. The Word of God says, But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a, second, after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. Verse 12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there, and diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet the pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. It's been some two years now since we began our, our time in the book of Titus and and during that time, we have looked at so many different aspects of theology, so many different aspects of our Christian walk. But if I could find one verse in particular to sum it all up, I'd have to look at, at chapter 2 and, and verse 10. And Paul says there basically, the purpose of believers living is to show all good faith so that they may adorn the doctrines of God, our Saviour, in every respect. Now while that verse is particularly directed towards bond slaves, what it does in, in essence is captures in one statement the true essence of responsibility for every single believer within the church. We are to live like, so that the world can see that our God saves sinners. The supreme charge for us here is to adorn the doctrines of the teachings of Scripture. We want to wear, we want to put on God's saving power and by doing so demonstrate what saved lives 
look like. This is so fundamental for us as believers. We must live so that the word of God is not dishonoured. We must live so that the critics of the Christian faith are silenced because they have absolutely nothing negative to say about us. We must live so as to display and verify the teaching that God is a God who saves sinners. There are so many lessons that we have covered in the book of Titus. This is a letter for all the ages. There are issues here addressed to the young men of the church. Chapter 2, the young women of the church, older men, older women. Again, I'll leave it up to yourselves where you place yourselves in those, in those categories. But it is a letter for all ages and all stages of life. It's a book that contains a message for, for our leaders. What they should know, what they should do, and what kind of men that they should be. And it gives us an outline on how to confront error and remove false teachers from the church. It's a book that that teaches us how to face a hostile community. We've looked at the biblical roles of men and women, both in the church and in the home. We've looked also at discipleship, how we can disciple and and minister to each other. It's a book all about our witness to the world, with with brilliant teachings on on evangelism and, and personal holiness, what it's like to live before the Lord. Teachings on integrity and on, on purity in our Christian walk. But if you could boil all those ideas down into one thing, essentially the book of Titus is about relationships. Chapter by chapter you see different relationships and and how we must live according to each one, whether it be between us and God in chapter 1 or between us and us in chapter 2 or between us and unbelievers on the outside, chapter 3. Titus is all about right relationships. It's about healthy relationships. And as we, we navigate these relationships, we are instructed on on living whilst we adorn the doctrines of God. We are instructed to live and display a saved life. Just thinking about relationships as a whole, no matter whether you are a believer, an unbeliever, no matter what your your background is, the world in general desires peaceful, good relationships. No matter what background, we all want to generally get along. With each other. The world so often misses this mark altogether. They miss what a healthy relationship truly is. But for us here this morning, for us in Christ Jesus, we can have healthy relationships that bring honor to the Lord. This is the book of of Titus in a nutshell how to have a healthy relationship. Relationship, And as we, we close off with Paul's final words of instructions on healthy relationships, he does it in four distinct categories this morning. A final word on relationships with false leaders. The final word on relationships with false people or factitious, factitious people. 
final word on fellow servants, and finally, the, fellow word, uh, the final word on faithful friends. Sorry, that's a lot of Fs in there. Got a bit tongue-tied. Start by, by looking at Paul's final instruction regarding false teachers. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable. Now, to begin to understand what this is like, you have to take your mind back to the time of the Christian church when, when Paul is writing this letter. The church had been somewhat infiltrated by false teachers and, and might I add, nothing much seems to have changed today. The situation back then, though, had become so dire that Paul, in, in chapter 1, he instructed Titus to to appoint elders in every city. It was, Paul was writing to, to give back, to, to instruct Titus to continue to bring back strong spiritual leadership within the church. Men who, according to verse 9 of, of chapter 1, would hold fast to the faithful word of God. They would stand firm on the word of God. Whenever this this happens in the local church, whenever false teaching arises, what is needed? Strong leadership. Strong leadership. But that's not enough by itself in order to push back against false teaching. It needs to be strong leadership founded in the Word of God. Founded in the faithful Word of God. We must look only to the faithful Word of God so as to stand firm against anyone who might attack, anyone who might contradict. If the church is, is going to witness to the world, it must stand firm on the truth of God's Word. It must maintain true and right doctrine. It must maintain true and right doctrine. Why? Because right doctrine is the foundation for right living. And so it must be protected. It is vital that false teachers be challenged, false teachers be dealt with, so that the church might be protected from them. And Paul's final words here on false teachers, the start of verse 9, avoid them. This is a, a command here, it's imperative, literally meaning to continually shun, to continually turn your back, to continually walk the other way. And the, the implications of this uh, are great. The, firstly, if, if we are to continually avoid them, that means that they will continually be coming after us. It means that until the Lord returns, the church will always be under the threat of false teachers, just like it was in Paul's day. And, and we see this today. Churches that, that once stood firm on the foundation of God's Word now erring in their stance, all in the name of, of acceptance and love. They allowed false teaching to enter in and they opened their doors to pragmatic culture. And now they, they can't seem to, to turn back. It can creep slowly in or can, there can be a rapid shift we're not talking here about the difference between solid truth and blatant error, but rather the difference between truth 
and almost truth. Subtle, but it will always be there. And it is vitally important for us to avoid, for us to walk the other way, armed with the weapon, the faithful word of God. In this verse here, Paul puts false teachers into four different categories, giving us some components of their their error. First of all, he, he talks about foolish controversies. The word here for foolish is where we get our English word moron or moronic. It literally means a moronic argument, a moronic debate, a moronic controversy. As one commentator says, false teachers will always want to argue the truth. They will always want to attack the theology of the church and they will always want to argue what is historically true and affirmed through the Word of God. This problem was not only confined to the church at Crete, by the way, as pastor has been leading us through the letters to, to Timothy. So often there, Paul makes... Exactly the same warning. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, Paul writes and warns Timothy in, in Ephesus, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine confirming godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about the words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. Same thing in, in, chapter, in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It says, Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead only to further ungodliness, and it will spread like gangrene. This was a problem everywhere. The church back then and also today seems to waste countless hours in debate with these foolish, these moronic speculations. And that's all it is. It is foolish arguments designed simply to attack the truth of God's Word. And we're told here, do nothing but avoid it. Don't let yourself be drawn in. Take the higher ground. Shun these foolish controversies. The second aspect that, that Paul talks about, false teaching, is genealogies. You might say, well, does that mean we uh, skip the first few chapters of, of Matthew or, or Luke? No, of course. Of course it does not mean that. What this has to do with here is these wild, these symbolic interpretations of Old Testament lists of names. Instead of just just taking them on historical value. Instead of doing that, these, these false teachers were, were reading into these lists of names all kind of bizarre and wacky and mystical interpretations. And this would only lead to a, a false, mystical understanding of what was simply a, a God-given record of names all pointing towards the Messiah. But people were getting, they were getting drawn into this false teaching. Remember, it's, it's not necessarily straight up error we're talking about, but truth versus almost truth. This warning for them only highlights to us 
the importance of reading the Word of God with a literal, historical and grammatical framework. Take the Word of God as is and don't attempt to read all these fanciful, mystical ideas into it. Thirdly, Paul mentions strife or or rivalry or or contention, whatever you might have in, in your translation. And again, this is reminiscent of, of 1 Timothy. If anyone advocates a different a doctrine, out of which arises envy and strife. False teachers who attack the historic truth of God's word will ultimately bring strife, cause strife within the church. And that strife is, is only designed to destroy the confidence and the security and the sense of rest that the saints have in the truth of God's word. Paul says, avoid strife. And finally, avoid disputes about the law. This is reminiscent of the false teachers in, in the book of Galatians, the, the, Judaizer, the Judaizers, a Jewish mindset, where they were forcing believers to obey the Mosaic law by becoming circumcised. Essentially, this is what the Council of Jerusalem was about in AD 50, whether or not Christians had to be circumcised. And it all plays out in in Acts chapter 15, if you'd like to read it. But essentially it was decided by by Peter and and James, the brother of Jesus, that this was not the case. Circumcision was a secondary issue. It was was something that, that did not need to be obeyed by Christians. The Judaizers were propagating this this thought and so Paul warns us against this kind of teaching. In fact, when you come across anything that attacks the Word of God, any foolish controversy, any mystical speculation, any of these mere arguments or disputes about the things of God, Paul says simply, shun it, avoid it, turn your back, walk the other way. It is unprofitable and worthless. Anything that is labeled unprofitable and, and worthless is certainly something that we want to be not involved in in any way. Anybody that attacks the truth is not worthy of being heard because they have no interest in accepting divine truth. Both Doctrinal errors and and endless bickering over them is a complete waste of time and energy. As believers adorning the doctrines of God, we want no part in false teaching. Sadly today, there are a multitude of churches full of gullible people being led astray by false teaching. We only need to spend ten minutes in Kurong, down here in Adelaide, and you see the shelves full of books, bestsellers that are designed to do nothing but tickle the ears and lead people astray. And so the responsibility is then placed on us. If we are not reading, if we are not studying, if we are not understanding the truth of the Scriptures ourselves, we too could be led astray into this false teaching. In order to be aware of of what false teaching even is, we must be faithful in reading and studying the Word of God, holding fast to 
the Word of God. We must be listening to our elders, to our leaders, on their insights to the Word of God. And we must set apart time each day for the Lord. We live busy lives, yes, but time without the Lord is time not worth having. Set apart time for the Lord each day. Read His Word, know His Word, study His Word, so as to be better equipped to shun and avoid false teaching. If this is something that you don't even know how to do, please, please see one of the the leaders here this morning before you leave. This is Paul's last word on false teachers. Avoid them, shun them. Secondly, Paul... Excuse me a sec. He gives us his last word on relationships with fascist people or divisive people. Verse 10 and and 11 says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. Yes, this absolutely could refer to a false teacher because they would be divisive. Through their actions, they would split the people from one side to the other. But really, it goes beyond that even more. It can be splitting the church. It can, it can be more than just splitting the church over, over a doctrinal issue. A divisive person is, here is anyone who seeks to divide or to fracture the fellowship of the church. Things like creating little groups or little circles to hang out in or, or congregate in within the church. Anything like this. When division arises in the church, the church's testimony is weakened. Anytime there is division present, there is a problem. What makes our sound doctrine believable is the integrity of our unity together. And Jesus, he made this clear the time that he spoke to his disciples in in John chapter 13. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The idea here of a divisive man is is someone who makes a resolute choice against truth. The word here in Greek is, is where we get the word heretic or apostate from. One who has chosen an unbiblical path and he is gathering followers and he is causing strife and he is causing fractions, fractures in the in the fellowship of the church. It's used here to mean one who has chosen an idea or, or a viewpoint that is not acceptable to the church. It was not acceptable to the Word of God. It is not acceptable to the leadership. And therefore, it is divisive. A divisive man will not submit to the Word of God and he would not submit to the leadership of the church. Often this, this kind of person, they, they hold some kind of novel interpretation, some new interpretation. Think of the author and pastor, sadly, Rob Bell, who in his book, Love Wins, basically propagates this idea that God's love is so great, it's so embracing that, no, that every single person will be saved and nobody goes to hell. Yes, God is a God of love, absolutely, That is one of his most beautiful characters. 
But sadly, that teaching is not what the Bible says. It goes against biblical truth. And this is only one example of a professing believer who has gone public and done nothing but cause division with his false teaching. He has an ignorant interpretation of Scripture and is therefore divisive to the church. Unity amongst God's people is is crucial and it's a theme that runs deep through the Scriptures. Couldn't help but but think of, of Philippians Chapter 1, where Paul tells them, verse 27, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are striving together, standing firm in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. The unity of the church is, is absolutely crucial. And that's why Paul addresses it here in the close of his letter. He says, when division arises after one or two warnings with no change, reject them. It's that simple. Have nothing to do with them. This is basically church discipline playing out here. Matthew chapter 18. Someone is is causing division. You go to them. They do not repent. You go with two or three. They still do not repent. Three, step three, now you tell the whole church and you treat them as an outcast. Matthew 18, verse 17, let him be to you as a pagan. You are to cut them off from the fellowship. Something I feel we, we often forget with, with church discipline. It's not, church discipline is not a witch hunt. It's not that we're out for blood. It's not that we're out to humiliate the other person. Our desire must always be for restoration and repentance. This goes for for anyone who is in sin. We want them to be restored back to the Lord and thus be brought back into the fellowship. And it's a fine line here. You want them in the family of God, but they're in sin. And so you go through the warning process But if they don't respond in repentance, you cast them out. You reject them. It's that simple. There are people today in the local church and sadly the the Christian circles worldwide who teach error, who live ungodly lives, who are self-willed and who are divisive. And rather than being rejected, they're simply allowed to, to carry on. They're tolerated. And often they're respected. They're almost given a platform for their heresy. This cannot be. We must be discerning. We must be diligent to guard ourselves against division. Thinking about division and, and, and unity, if, if there can be division, if there can be disunity, that means that we must also be able to have true unity. And I couldn't help but, but ask the question, what is true unity? What does unity in the church look like? Is unity coming along week after week and and shaking hands and and giving hugs and saying hello and asking how each other's weeks were? I guess that's that's kind of unity. But to me that, that seems very shallow, very superficial. That seems very external. 
I believe true unity is far greater. It's so much deeper than just a handshake. True unity is found in fellowship over the truth of God's Word. True unity is found in standing together in truth, standing together in sound doctrine. Everything else is is second best and comes and goes depending on, on people's moods. But the truth of God's Word, that is eternal and that will last forever. True unity is found in the truth of God's Word. So Paul's final words on divisive people here, reject them, reject them. After they've been warned and are willingly going on sinning, the best thing you can do for them and for the church, might I add, is to reject them. So we are to shun false teachers. We are to reject divisive men. Thirdly, we come to a a nicer group now. Fellow servants. Fellow servants. Paul, by by means of, of personal words to Titus, gives us some final instruction, some helpful thoughts on, on relationships with, with other Christians. Verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Now, of course, this is directed personally at Titus, and I I think often we can, we can skip over these last few verses of, of each book and kind of put it in the not-so-important pile. But there's always things that we can learn, even if it is just a list of names and, and instructions. It's often from these, these last few verses that we're able to piece together mission journeys and, and, and where people are in the world at the time. So we have a, a list of, of four names Four faithful servants who serve alongside Titus. Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus and Apollos. And it's Titus' responsibility here to take care of his fellow servants. One thing that is really important for us to see here is how the Lord sovereignly, through Paul, continues to move his servants to spread his message, to continually, to faithfully lead the church throughout the world. It's almost as if Paul is, is the general in, in charge here and, and he's guided by the Spirit and he positions his troops for battle throughout the land where they are needed most. Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus and Apollos and of course Titus, they're all fellow servants of the Lord working under the leadership of Paul. Says verse 12 that Artemis and Tychicus are coming to replace Titus. And we don't know for sure when this took place, but we know that it certainly did happen because by the time 2 Timothy is written, Titus is recorded in Dalmatia. So he's been charged, so they have been charged with setting the church in order. That's Artemis and Tychicus. And so this would have taken place. Paul tells. Titus, that he wants to meet him in Nicopolis. Now, I found it helpful when, when doing this. Uh, I've got a little map for us here. Um, we've got Crete down the bottom here. This is where the letter was written. Paul was most likely up in Philippi at the time, up the top here. 
And here is Nicopolis over this side here. And so these, these four men, they are most likely with Paul up here. And so, yeah, it's just something I found quite helpful for me when, when understanding this. Nicopolis, down over, over to the side here, that word actually means victory city. And, and every time a Roman emperor would, would conquer some land or they would win a great battle, they would essentially build a, a Nicopolis. They would build a victory city. And so we have about nine Nicopolises in the area to, to choose from. The biblical historians have no doubt that Nicopolis is the one referred to there on the coast of Ephesus. It's a commercial seaport and it was founded by Octavian in 31 BC when he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. I always find it fascinating how secular history and, and biblical history fit so perfectly together. Paul is not in prison yet, obviously. He's up in Philippi. He's somewhere in Macedonia. And you get a sense of, of urgency in his, his writing here. Please, Titus, make every effort. Come to me. It's as if Paul knows that his time is, is rapidly coming to an end and, and he wants some final time with his faithful servant who will continue his mission after he is gone, spreading the gospel to the Gentile world. Artemis, we don't really know much about him. He is the first, this is the first and, and only mention of, of him in scriptures. But at the same time, for the great apostle Paul to send him to take charge of the church in Crete he must have been some guy to take on the task of setting the church in order requires a man who is strong in the faith someone who holds fast to the teachings of the word of god so paul puts paul thought that he was up to the task obviously and so that alone says a lot about his character tychicus is a man who is more familiar to us he is an, an interesting character and if we had more time, I would love to, to go into detail about his journey. But basically, to, to sum it up, he accompanies Paul on a, on a mission journey from Corinth to, to Asia Minor. He is the man who has delivered the Ephesian letter and also the Colossian letter. And Paul tells us in uh, Colossians 4 verse 7 that Tychicus is a beloved brother and a faithful servant. He is a fellow bondservant. In the Lord, he is mentioned also at the end of, of Ephesians, and the last we hear of him is, is in Second Timothy, where Paul tells us that he was sent to Ephesus to replace Timothy. And we know again from Pastor's series through Timothy that Ephesus was no easy place to minister. So for him to firstly go to Crete and, and then to Ephesus, he must have been a great and faithful servant of the Lord, a man that, as Paul describes in chapter 1, holds fast to the faithful word of God. Paul says, I'm sending somebody to you. I want you to come to me, Titus. I want to spend some time with you. I'm going to be in Nicopolis. And then verse 13, he says, Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. The other two mentioned here are, are passing by the way of Titus. Zenos the lawyer... And again, we, we don't know anything about him either. It's the first mention. However, he is the only Christian lawyer mentioned in Scripture, so uh, not all lawyers are, are dodgy, I guess. Sorry, Cobus. 
Apollos, we do know about. Uh, the best information we, we have on, on Apollos is actually from, from Acts 18. And I'd love it if you could turn there with me to see and read this faithful portrait of this man, Apollos. Acts chapter 18, reading from, from verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth and an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and been fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him more accurately the ways of the things of the Lord. And he wanted to go across to Achaia, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Again, we, we see a man used by God. And, and what stands out most about this guy, you cannot look past verse 24 here. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was a, a faithful servant of God. Now, a faithful servant of God must be mighty in the scriptures. Later, Apollos would work at, at Corinth and he was blessed by the Lord there. He became a, a partner of Paul and, and had a tremendous ministry amongst the Corinthian church. He's another faithful servant. So, Zenos and Apollos are going via Titus. And we can only assume that they are on their way to another missionary journey as they willingly set out to serve the Lord. What do you notice is, is common about all of these men? Who does the Lord use as, as, as teachers and, and as leaders of his church? He uses faithful men, faithful in their teaching, faithful to the scriptures, always willing to serve the Lord and willing to serve and help each other. They are part of the team all working for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. They're all helping each other out as they work together to take God's message to the unbelieving world. False teachers are to be shunned. Divisive people are to be rejected. Fellow servants are to be willingly helped. And finally, we come to the fourth and final group that Paul gives us hear his last words on. That is faithful friends. Verse 14 says, And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. Verse 12 and, and 13 prior to this was somewhat at a, at a leadership level of the church. And now verse 14, this is at the congregational level of the church. Titus is, is to tell everybody here, you must help each other out. You must learn to engage in good deeds. This is a theme as, as we've read all through this letter. Verse 1 of, of chapter 3, be ready for every good deed. Verse 8, be careful to engage in good deeds. 
Verse 12 of chapter 2, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. Why? Verse 14, because God is purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It is crucial here for the entire congregation to learn to engage in good needs and good deeds so as to meet the pressing needs of the people. As we read from John 13 earlier, by this we are known as believers that we love and care for one another. The unbelieving world around us sees that we are set apart when we look after and take care of each other's needs. The unbelieving world will will witness God's saving power and God's grace when we ourselves do good deeds amongst each other. Of course, this is, this is not a way to earn our salvation, but rather our good deeds flow out of our salvation. Because we are saved, we desire to meet the needs of others. This is the heart of our witness. Paul's final words on, on relationships between all of you is that you learn to do good deeds and you meet the needs of fellow believers. Pour your life into each other's so that you will be full of fruit and the world will know you by this. Shun the false teacher, reject the divisive man, help the fellow servant, be faithful in serving your friends. All these things, they they bring honour to the Lord. All these things, they, they help us to protect the church. All these things, they display a saved life to the unbelieving world around us. And finally, Paul ends this this letter as he often does with, with what is most important. He ends by wishing them the one thing that they cannot do all of this without, the glue that, that holds it all together. God's grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We we thank you for, for the Apostle Paul and, and his servant Titus, Lord, and, and the lessons that we've been able to, to glean from this. We are in awe of, of you, God, the God that you are. You are ever, ever faithful and your word is true. And, and help us, Lord, to stand firm and help us to, to continually look to you that we might have ever healthy and right relationships with you, with each other, and with the unbelieving world around us, we pray. We ask these things now, Lord, in your precious, holy, wonderful name we pray. Amen. Please stand for our our benediction this morning from Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.